0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 293, where we talk to Preston Cooper from the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity about the ROI of your graduate degree.
1: From a purely financial perspective, pursuing the degree earlier is going to be better. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you absolutely should pursue the degree earlier, because it's important also to take some time in your career to figure out, well, what is it that I really want to do? And if you get the MBA at 23 and then you decide at 25, you know, I really hate business. I really don't like doing this. <laughs> That's not a great situation for for you to be in. So uh, while I would say that, you know, from a very narrow financial perspective, yes, it is going to be better to get that degree earlier, you, that doesn't mean you should always pursue it earlier because it is important to be sure that this degree is what you want, that this degree is what is going to help you advance your career before you take the plunge and decide to enroll in graduate school.
0: Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and joining me today are two co-hosts, Dave Meyer, BiggerPockets resident numbers nerd, and the host of our latest podcast called On the Market, where he dives deep into his favorite subject, data about the real estate market, along with an impressive rotating panel, including Kathy Fetke, Jamil Damji, James Daynard, and the Henry Washington.
2: Wow, Mindy, thank you for that, that very descriptive intro. I appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you for joining me today, Dave. And Scott Trench is here, too.
3: I know that, I know. there's a need to be economical with your intro, but dang, that's a... <laughs> you got the slight, <laughs> man.
0: <laughs> we don't have time. We have Preston Cooper here today. He's back. He's going to talk to us about graduate school degrees. And he has so much information. We don't have time for chit-chat, but we do have time for our normal intro. So Scott and Dave and I are here to make financial independence less... Gary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting.
3: That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or just determine if going to college or getting that master's degree is worth it, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams.
0: I am so excited for today's guest. It is Preston Cooper. You last heard him on episode 251 of this same show, where he talked about the ROI of your undergrad degree and or your potential undergrad degree. And it was very interesting what he shared with us then. And he's back today to share with us the ROI of more than 11,000 Master's degrees and twenty three hundred advanced degrees, like PhDs or professional degrees, and I thought it was a lot of fun. Dave, what did you think of today's show?
2: I am constantly impressed by Preston. I think we all sort of fawn over him a little bit, and I don't know if he gets uncomfortable <laughs> by how impressed we are by him. But it's genuine. His his work is just so good, and he it's so thorough. He really has an answer for everything and really understands this topic really deeply. And it's a super important topic. So I I hope everyone out there listens to the very end because he gives some great advice on how you should... Think about a graduate degree. Preston Cooper, you could say, is the is the Dave Meyer of the the the
3: higher education space and the <laughs> ROI of that kind of stuff. You know, so or, or maybe, maybe Dave Meyer is the Preston Cooper of the real estate space here. But I, I think you guys oh. are, have a very similar skill set in terms of how you think about and like to com- exhaustively analyze um, your fields of expertise. And and you know, I love the way that he has thought of every conceivable impact and influence on college ROI eyes is completely open to new things is genuine excitement when we bring questions that maybe weren't part of the study, but he thinks are great considerations like the tax thing that we discuss later on in the show. Um, And so I I think it's a very similar mentality that the approach that you bring Dave to your real estate data
2: and analytics. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. That's very nice of you being compared to Preston is always an honor. But if you are interested in the type of work that Preston and I do, where we analyze different data, news, and current events, you should definitely check out BiggerPockets' newest podcast. It's called On the Market, and we actually have a new episode out today. Who's it with? So each week, I actually chat with a panel of real estate experts. We have Henry Washington. We have Kathy Fecky, and Jamil Damji on this Week's episode. And we are talking about the best housing markets to invest in in America. So each one of our experts is coming in with their two favorite markets, explaining all the data and economics behind why they like these markets. And you can get in on these excellent markets ahead of everyone else if you listen to On the Market today. Yeah, and I think I
3: think also you give out a little a little goodie um, in some of the episodes that like will have the list of you know the data driven best markets perhaps um, that you can download um, uh, available only to listeners of on the market as well. So if you want that data, got to go check that out um, at uh, um, Dave's new show on the market available wherever podcasts are hosted.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we do this thing where every couple of weeks we release a data drop where I prepare all sorts of information, sort of like what Preston does for his. Uh, incredible study, but we do it for the real estate market. And if you listen, you might hear one of these data drops where we give away this incredible information for free. But there's also all sorts of great um, discussion, perspectives every week on On the Market. So I really hope you check it out. It's a really fun and worthwhile show. um, And we hope you see you there.
0: You can listen to Dave's episode that releases today at biggerpockets.com slash OTM03. That's OTM on the market, episode three, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet.
0: Scott's right. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com.
3: NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
0: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply.
4: You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. So whether you've got a single family, short term or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. The easiest
0: way to collect rent? Rent app. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app/landlord. Okay, guys, I'm so excited to bring in Preston. We talked for a long time today because absolutely everything he says is pure gold. Preston Cooper wowed us with his impressive exhaustive research on the roi for undergrad degrees way back on episode 251 of the bigger pockets money podcast and if you have anyone in your life considering attending college and haven't listened to it yet you need to and they need to listen to it too it's kind of eye-opening and a little bit surprising at some of his findings at the end of that episode Preston casually mentioned that he was working on similar research for graduate degrees as well and I asked him to let me know when his research was complete so we could have him back on the show well he's finished up his study and the results of this one are equally surprising preston cooper from the foundation for research on equal opportunity welcome back to the bigger pockets money podcast
1: thank you mindy it's uh, it's great to be back on the show and uh, thank you for your kind words about my research
0: i okay i can't imagine how much time you spent looking at numbers and re- like I was reading your report and it's just like combing through all of these things and it's like, we checked in this and checked in that, and I'm going to let you describe all of that, but holy cow. Wow. It's so impressive. I love it. (laughs) And we are going to talk for about a hundred hours and I want to jump right into it, but can you give us a quick overview of what your most recent research covers?
1: Absolutely. So what we're looking at in my most recent research is what is the financial value of graduate school? So we took 11,000 different master's degrees and about 2,300 different uh, doctoral and professional degrees. And we asked, uh, well, what are these actually worth financially? So what is the increase in earnings that you can expect for having gotten this degree? And what are the costs associated with getting that degree? What are you going to pay in tuition? How much time do do you need to spend out of the labor force in order to earn that degree? Basically, we did the math to ma- to add all these costs and benefits up. And uh, we came up with the answer uh, for each of nearly 14,000 graduate degrees. You know, what are these actually worth? Uh, what can you, how much, uh, f- how, uh, how, much, how fur- much further ahead can you expect to get financially for having gotten one of these degrees?
0: Okay, I just want to clarify. A master's degree is about two years of full-time school. But when I looked up how long it takes to get a PhD, the timeline varied greatly from the extremely rare 12 to 24 months to as a, uh, all the way up to six to eight years. So I just wanna be clear that there is not only a financial commitment, but there's a pretty serious time commitment in getting your advanced degree. So I just wanna plant that seed in case anybody was confused on how long it takes to actually get the degree time-wise.
1: Absolutely. And this opportunity cost aspect is so important to consider because I think often when people are considering a higher education, getting a master's or advanced degree, they look at the cost of tuition, which is super important, no doubt. But it's also important to consider, you know, what else could you be doing with your time? You know, if you're in a job earning $80,000 a year right now, and you're going to take two years out of your life to get an MBA, that's certainly a cost that you need to consider, that you'll be out of the labor force for two years, giving up $160,000 potentially uh, in, in lost earnings, and uh, it's something that, uh, that is definitely uh, th- something you should keep in mind uh, when you're deciding whether to pursue graduate school.
3: You know, I think there's a bunch of questions that pop into your mind when when going through this, and so I'll just kind of spitball a few uh, for you with this. But, you know, one one thing that I think a lot of – I think you you mentioned the MBA is the most popular um, degree in your study. And a hypothesis I would have had coming into the study would be, hey, you know, a a degree from Harvard or Chicago or – you know, Wharton is going to be dramatically different from an ROI perspective from one from you know maybe the local state school. With that, um, based on the the reputation that those those name brand top league Ivy schools have, um, especially in the NBA department, can you walk us through something? You know, your, your thoughts or what the research has to say about that hypothesis.
1: Absolutely. So I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, what does the research say on MBAs, it's important to consider, you know, that there are multiple components to ROI. So there's realized earnings. If you get the degree, what are your earnings going to be for the rest of your career? But then there's also counterfactual earnings, where if you didn't get the degree, but you were still the same person, you know, in that parallel universe where you don't have the graduate degree, what would you have earned? And it turns out that counterfactual is going to be very different for different graduate degrees. And the reason is that Different college majors are going to feed into different graduate degrees. So an MBA is more likely to draw uh, uh, students who have uh, undergraduate degrees in finance, economics, business. Not universally, but disproportionately, it's going to be those those majors. But you know, a degree like the Master's of Social Work, that's probably going to draw people who have uh, bachelor's degrees in like psychology, sociology, anthropology. Social work is an undergraduate degree, so they're going to have very different earnings potential from the people who have a bachelor's degree in economics or finance. And so uh, that kind of brings me to the question of MBAs. So you'll see uh, uh, reporting in the media that basically says, you know, MBA salaries are crazy high this year. They're 100k or whatever. They're they're they're, they're uh, really really great. But it's also important to consider what is the counterfactual for those MBA degrees because. If you have a bachelor's degree in finance or economics, you probably already have, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a pretty firm foundation, you know, earnings wise. And so it's not entirely clear that the MBA is actually going to add that much more. So what we did is, you know, we crunched the numbers. We said, uh, what is the median earnings that you get with an MBA? And what are the median counterfactual earnings for those people who are getting an MBA? But if they were in a parallel universe where they didn't have that degree, what would they have earned? Uh, And the gap is actually not that big. So we estimate that median earnings for someone with an MBA are about uh, $88,000, but median counterfactual earnings are about $83,000. So that's only about a $5,000 increase that the median MBA is. Is getting. (laughs) And, uh, you know, once you stack that up against the fact that you have to spend two years out of the labor force to get an MBA, that you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars in tuition, usually, in order to get that degree, that's, you're not always going to come out ahead for that. Uh, And what we find is that 62% of MBAs and other uh, business related master's degrees do not pay off, they have negative ROI. So, 62% of programs, the median student is going to be worse off for having pursued that MBA. Uh, that's not you know 62 percent is not 100 percent 100 percent and there's certainly exceptions but that is a big red flag uh, for people who are considering an MBA.
3: So so if, uh, another way of saying that and, and and correct me please let me know if this is the right way to think about it um, is if I am ambitious and smart enough and hustling hard enough to get into Harvard Business School after my undergrad in economics five years later then I'm going to earn a ton ton of money. Whether I go to Harvard Business School or not, and Harvard Business School may only increase my my actual earnings potential modestly. It's because of you know who I am and, and the counterfact, the, the the reality and the circumstances I'm in that would enable me to have that option. That that's what's going to propel me to those high earnings in a future. State is that how to think about it.
1: Yes. So we need to be thinking about, you know, both the person and the degree who's who's pursuing one of these uh, who's pursuing one of these advanced degrees. But um, I'm really glad that you brought up Harvard Business School, because Harvard is kind of the exception that proves the rule. Uh, so we actually calculate that for the top 20 MBA degrees. So, you know, the degrees from Harvard, from Yale, from Chicago Booth, from uh, uh, from Penn Wharton these MBAs kind of buck the trend. So for most of these schools, you know, the top 15-20 MBA programs, the ROI is going to be above 2 million. These are some of the, actually the best master's degrees that you can possibly get. The problem is, is that they're not representative of all MBAs. And so there is this very long right tail of elite master's degree programs, elite MBAs that are going to get you a lot of earnings, you know, a lot of earnings, but the, uh, the average MBA is not going to be in that category. And the reason I hypothesize for this is that, in an MBA program, professional connections are very important. You know, it's all about you know the networking and less about you know what you're actually learning in your coursework. And if you go to one of these elite schools, you know you're going to be uh, for an MBA program, you're probably going to be rubbing shoulders with people who work on Wall Street and you know <laughs> people uh, uh, you're going to have access to an alumni network that uh, uh, probably has uh, is going to be able to get you into a number of very lucrative jobs. So if you're going to Penn or Harvard or Yale or Chicago for your MBA, you are probably going to to do, be doing pretty well. But the problem is when we generalize that experience of the top 20 MBA degrees to all 500 MBA programs across the country, you know, at schools where the professional connections are not quite as great, is much less likely that the MBA is going to pay off.
3: That's fascinating.
0: That is fascinating because that is not in the MBA brochure at all. Hey, this isn't going to pan out for you. Um, I bet <laughs> the MBA programs that you didn't just mention are like, Preston, stop, stop. <laughs> I was going to ask, are there any degrees where it doesn't matter what program you go through having the MBA is, or I'm sorry, having the degree is still worthwhile?
1: So the uh, uh, master's degrees that are going to pay off most often are probably not super surprising, but they include a lot of computer science, engineering, mathematics, nursing, you know, Programs that are, you know, also pretty good at the undergraduate level, uh, you know, and if you're getting this, uh, master's degree, that's probably teaching you skills that are going to enable you to, uh, to graduate to uh, a promotion or to a raise, you know, get you that additional level of skills that'll enable you to increase your earnings potential. And we find out that most master's degrees in those fields, uh, computer science, engineering, nursing, uh, they are going to pay off. And that's, uh, that's good news for people who are considering a degree in one of those fields.
3: What about um what, what are what are some of the, the most likely to be negative degrees? Um we already discussed MBAs um outside of the top twenty, but what what are some of the ones that are that have the worst ROI?
1: So uh, the ones that have the worst ROI are usually in the arts, the humanities, you know, theology fields. Which again, I don't think is terribly surprising, but it it it, it tends to be the case that uh, people who pursue, say, a Master of Fine Arts uh, (MFA), uh, they're usually not going to get a big enough earnings boost from the MFA in order to uh, justify the cost of graduate school. Which is, I think, kind of a shame because I think people who are uh, you know majoring in uh, in an artistic field as an undergraduate, you know an art or a music field and then they say you know the earnings associated with this uh, bachelor's degree just really are not what i've hoped for but maybe if i get a master's degree that'll help out help me out some more It turns out not to be the case, you know, that the uh, uh, additional earnings that you're going to get for having gotten that MFA are usually not going to be enough to uh, justify the cost of spending a year or two in an MFA program and spending that time out of the labor force. So, you know, if you're looking to do an MFA in order to increase your earnings potential, um, I would say you you might want to look elsewhere. Now, if you're doing an MFA uh, because you just you 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 love the idea of learning and you and you want to get a master's degree, you know it's a free country. You should be allowed to do that, but I don't want you to have any illusions that you're going to get a huge financial benefit from this degree.
2: Preston, one of the things I loved about your original research that we talked about was that you adjusted for completion rates and you saw that certain schools that might have a positive ROI for people who actually complete the program, when you look at it in aggregate had a negative ROI because so few students actually graduated. Does the same phenomenon exist with graduate schools or do you see more students actually completing these programs?
1: That's a great question. So the uh, completion adjustment difference that you alluded to. So at the undergraduate level, this basically says, yes, if you get the degree, you're going to get uh, a big bump in earnings from this, but there's only a 60% chance or so of actually of actually completing. And uh, that's a big problem because there's this huge risk that you'll drop out and you'll be left with the debt, but, uh, but none of the benefits of the degree. Um, so this turns out to be less of an issue at the graduate level because completion rates for master's degrees, professional degrees. Are already you know pretty high. Uh, they're north of eighty uh, percent. You know, even for very difficult programs like medical school, you know, it's still north of eighty-five percent completion rates. So the completion adjustment, which we do do in this uh, in this paper, just doesn't tend to make that much of a difference. Now there is. One very massive exception, and that is Ph.D. programs, which have a much lower, much lower completion rate than other graduate degrees. Uh, and in that case, you know, Ph.D. programs, which are already, you know, not that lucrative to begin with uh, uh The likelihood that those are going to pay off goes down considerably once you factor in uh, completion rates.
3: One of the things I, thought, I found surprising with this was the, um, the, the, the really destruction of value that comes with, with educational master's degree. I know a lot of teachers, and they all seem, or most of them, the vast majority of them seem intent on getting that master's degree um, in education. Do you have any, any thoughts on, on the phenomenon going on with that particular degree and why that, that's so low ROI?
1: Sure. So uh, that was that was also a bit surprising when when, when we saw that uh, that education master's degrees had uh, had fairly low ROI because you know most uh, states their salary schedules for uh, public school teachers are going to give you a benefit if uh, if uh, you uh, if you get that master's degree you know that uh, that the salary schedule is going to say uh, for somebody with a master's degree they're going to be earning more than uh, uh, someone we with a bachelor's degree with a similar amount of experience but it turns out that you know going to get an education Master's degree is hard and expensive, and you know it's uh, it requires taking time out of your teaching to your career to go and uh, to go and pursue that degree. And it turns out that even though there is an earnings benefit associated with uh, a master's in education, it tends to not not be great enough to cancel out the uh, the cost of uh, graduate school, which I think is uh, is kind of a shame. <laughs>
3: How do you um, how do you think about the costs? Uh, the fact that a lot of masters two questions two part question the the part that a lot of costs of these degrees are defrayed by the employer in some cases. Employers may pay for their employees to go and get these advanced degrees to help you know aid with retention or development of, of their people. And then second, um, many you know if I'm a parent. And I have an adult child who's 25, 27 years old, and I pay for their uh, graduate school. How does that change the, the dynamic there um, for, for a lot of these degrees? Is it, is it generally worthwhile to do the degree in both of those situations?
1: That's a great question. So yeah, just to clarify, the way that we calculate, you know, tuition expenses, we take into account, you know, uh, aid that's going to come from the school or from, you know, the federal government. You know, if you're getting veterans benefits or or, or whatever, you know, if you're if you're getting aid uh, in order to assist you with uh, with graduate school, we're going to uh, take that into account and say, you know, only your net tuition is uh, what's going to factor into the ROI calculation, not the not the gross tuition before aid. But we don't necessarily. Uh, uh have the data to calculate if, um, you know, employers or parents or these other third parties are coming in to help you help out with your graduate education uh, and to defray tuition costs. Uh, so we we uh, we didn't calculate it uh, with respect to um you know uh, uh zero tuition you know if if you're if your parents are are fully paying the bill but obviously you know that's going to make it a higher probability that uh that the uh, education is going to pay off if that um if that tuition expense is uh going down but you know i would say if you're a parent and uh you're considering well you know i've got some extra money laying around you know i've i've i've, I've had a good career and uh i want to help my uh, uh uh my my son or daughter better themselves by getting a graduate degree uh you should Probably be taking a look about whether that graduate degree is going to pay off or not. Because if the uh, uh, increase in earnings uh, associated with that degree is small enough uh, that, you know, you're um, uh, that if the increase in earnings associated with that degree is uh, too small, then it might you might be better off just giving your son or daughter that money as cash, you know, which uh, I don't necessarily think is, is something that uh, you might want to do as a, as a parent, you know, that might kind of go against the parent code, just to write your your son or daughter a big check. But, you know, if your goal is to, is financial security for your, uh, for your son or daughter, then often, you know, just taking that money as cash is going to be a better investment than uh, getting a grad, a graduate degree, depending on which graduate degree it is, of course.
3: I'm going all over the place with these questions here, but um, you know, <laughs> no the, another thing that I'm seeing here is that in your top 25, you've got um, basically law and dentistry as the two the two most likely to uh, uh, pay off. Uh, things there, and what I notice about the law degrees is that these law degrees are all coming from elite Ivy League institutions for the most part, right? Um, um, there's a couple of exceptions in there, but these are, you know, you're seeing familiar names like Pennsylvania, Harvard, Stanford, um, those those kind of law programs, and then for the dentistry programs, you're seeing. All over the place, and it looks like there may be a more cost focus there that that's leading to the the extreme ROI, like West Virginia and Eastern Carolina, and those types of things. Um, any thoughts on the law or dentistry professions?
1: That's a great point. So you know, law, dentistry, medicine—these are the professional degrees that are really, you know, the gold standard for uh, you know financial value in higher education. You know, over ninety percent of law, medical, dentistry degrees are going to pay off. You know, they're and often pay off in spades. You know, over uh, almost fifty percent of medical and dentistry degrees are going to have an ROI of of, uh, over one million. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, the very top of the the, list—the degrees that are going to have the hugest, hugest payoff—you know, talking millions of dollars over the course of your career—are all in law and dentistry fields. And uh, I think you brought up, you know, a very interesting uh, kind of nugget of information from that list, which is that you know, if you look at the list of the top law programs, we're all talking about extremely prestigious schools—you know, Columbia, uh, you know, Harvard Law, Yale Law—you know, uh, places that produce Supreme Court justices and uh, and so forth. Um, but if you look at the dentistry schools, you know I think the top one is from the University of Colorado, which is still a great school, of course, but it usually doesn't make the uh, you know the top of the U.S. News and World Report ranking, and I think that kind of signals that. Uh, uh, something about why these degrees are valuable. You know, that with law degrees, it might more be about who you know, and you know, what kind of professional connections you're making at the school, what kind of, you know, summer work, summer internship opportunities are available to you, and what are the jobs that you're gonna get out of uh, school that will enable you to to have a, a great and very lucrative career. You know, it's more about the connections than about what you learn. I think with dentistry, it might be the opposite, that, you know, there are some uh, dentistry schools that are just gonna do much better Better than others that you know teaching you the skills you need uh, to fix teeth, and uh, you know uh, that uh, there these uh, the list of schools that are teaching you the best uh, is not always going to align with the uh, uh, top U.S. News and World Report uh, ranked uh, ranked universities, um, and it might it might be in dentistry at least much more about the skills that you're learning than about the
2: uh, professional connections that you're making. We always have very good dentists here in Colorado. Can can definitely recommend some, uh, but Preston, I, I I had a question for you. So I I got a, a master's degree and deliberately chose to continue to work while I did that, um, and that was maybe that was difficult, but it was based on this opportunity cost. So I'm curious, have you looked at the data for um, these so called like executive programs where they're made for working professionals and how that would impact the roi of a master's degree that's a good question so what were
1: you pursuing your uh, uh your master's degree full-time while you were working were you doing both
2: full-time work and full-time uh uh school yes and i was self-managing seven rental units at the same time it was a very bad decision very bad decision wow. <laughs> but uh yeah it wasn't full-time i basically i took two classes at a time so i think that's probably less than a full workload Um, but uh and then you did it basically full year round, no breaks. So twenty four months straight, two two classes at a time. I see.
1: Yeah, so this is a great question. So, for the sake of simplicity, all of the ROI estimates that are reported in this paper are based on a full time enrollment and uh, not working while you're enrolled. Uh, But you know, there are many different paths to higher education, and uh, we definitely want to be cognizant of those other ones. So, let's think about you know what would happen if you uh, decided to enroll part time and also work part time, you know, while you're pursuing your degree, so that you can have a little bit of uh, extra earnings while you're pursuing it. I mean, that's that's what I'm doing, you know. When I'm pursuing my uh, my PhD, I'm, I'm also working part-time. Um, and so what happens is that you definitely don't lose out on as much of the opportunity cost of uh, of not working because you are working some of the time. But if that working part of the time, means that you have to uh, extend out your, your, your graduate program. So instead of a two-year program, it comes three or four years because you can't take as many classes at once. You have to extend it out for, for more years you are going to be saving money by uh, not, not spending time out of the labor force, but you're also gonna have fewer years in your career to enjoy the benefits of the higher earnings associated with the degree. So if it takes you four years to get your MBA rather than two, then you have two fewer years to enjoy uh, you know, the higher earnings associated with that MBA. You know, hopefully that they will. <laughs> hopefully that those higher earnings will materialize that you're in a good program. Um, but you know, that is definitely something to consider, uh, that there's op- the opportunity cost of not working, but there's also the delay cost of uh, delaying uh, uh, getting that degree for, for several years, which can, and those costs can also add up. Preston, you have thought of everything.
2: I just every every question, I think that maybe you haven't thought of it. You've thought of every single thing.
0: Do most people quit their job to go back to their uh, master's program, or do most people tend to do the the working through? I thought people worked through their master's program. My dad did. I think he has an MBA. I can't really remember what his, his degree is. I just remember there was a time that I was going to college graduations left and right
1: that's yeah that's a good question I I don't have the statistical breakdown in front of me you know as I said just for the sake of simplicity we assume that you know full-time work and, and not working while you're enrolled uh, and if your educational pathway is going to be different than that uh, the ROI estimates, I think, are still going to be kind of useful because most of ROI is going to be based on what you're earning. But you should be thinking about, you know, how is this going to deviate from that uh, from 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 that norm? You know, are am I going to be uh, gaining some by uh, not spending as much time out of the labor force, but also am I going to be losing some by having fewer years available in order to uh, enjoy the higher earnings associated with my graduate degree?
3: Does the the timing of the degree make any difference in the sense that? if i get the degree right after immediately following college and then go into the workforce does that change things or um is it better to wait and do it 5 6 years down the road after i've had some professional experience
1: that's a that's a very good question. So what we uh, uh, what we did in this analysis is basically we looked up what is the median age of graduation for each uh, different graduate degree, and it turns out that this really differs uh, for um, for different degrees. So law and medical programs, it's pretty typical for students to go uh, into those programs right out of college, or at least one or two years out of college. Uh, so you know they're probably going to be getting those degrees in their mid to late twenties. For MBA programs, it turns out that most the median age of graduation for those is around 30. So people will be working out in the workforce for a few years and then they'll be going back to school in order to get their MBA. So uh, everything is basically calculated based on the median age of graduation. So for an MBA program, median age of graduation is 30. You have uh, from the age of 30 through the rest of your career to enjoy those higher earnings benefits. For a medical degree, median age of graduation, I think, is around 26. So you have from age 26 until the end of your career to enjoy those higher earnings benefits. But also, that is something to think about You know, when, uh, when we're talking about um, you know uh, what is actually going to be the value of, uh, of of graduate school because it matters when you decide to pursue those degrees. And so, if you decide to pursue your degree earlier on in your career, uh, you're going to have uh, more years to enjoy the higher earnings benefits associated with that degree. It also might be the case that um, you know if you're enrolling at the age of 23 or 24, you don't have as much experience, so the opportunity cost of uh, not working for a couple years is going to be lower because a 23 year old is going to earn less than a 28-year-old uh, most of the time. Uh, so ten- it, it, it tends to be the case that uh, you know, for, from a purely financial perspective, pursuing the degree earlier is going to be better. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you absolutely should pursue the degree earlier, because it's important also to take some time in your career to figure out, well, what is it that I really want to do? And if you get the MBA at 23, and then you decide at 25, you know, I really hate business. I really don't like doing this. <laughs> That's not a great situation for, for you to be in. So uh, while I would say that, you know, from a very narrow financial perspective, yes, it is going to be better to get that degree earlier, You that doesn't mean you should always pursue it earlier because it is important to be sure that this degree is what you want, that this degree is what is going to help you advance your career before you take the plunge and decide to enroll in graduate school.
0: You're uh, average age of graduation seems to correlate with the requirements of the advanced degree to be able to work into that field as well like law and dentistry you can't just go start drilling on people's teeth until you have the advanced degree yeah. i'm assuming you can't be a dentist as a bachelor degree that's either. right
1: yeah that's right so if you <laughs> want to if you want to work in medicine or me. dentistry <laughs> <laughs> you are going to have to get that advanced degree if you want to practice in those fields. Um, and that's actually, I think, one of the major reasons why these degrees are so lucrative, um, you know, why, why medical degrees and law degrees and dentistry degrees are, um, are going to pay off so well. It's because the uh, requirements to practice in one of these fields are so, so strict. You have to have this advanced degree. So that's a really high barrier to entry in those professions. And that means if you have a really high barrier to entry... You're going to have a really uh, constricted supply of doctors and lawyers, and so the wages that those doctors and lawyers are going to get are going to be really, really, really high. <laughs> and so that's great for the doctors and lawyers, but you know, if we ask the question of, well, what does this mean for our society? What does this mean for the cost of healthcare or legal services? Maybe that's maybe that's not such a great thing you know maybe maybe having this uh, these these uh, these high walls around these professions are uh, not necessarily a great thing for our society if it's going to increase the cost of uh, of medical and uh, and legal services and I I do note in my paper that you know these really high returns associated with law and medical degrees are a signal that we should be lowering the walls that we should uh, be creating more pathways for students to become lawyers and doctors and dentists because high wages uh, for any profession are a signal that we need more people in this profession. You know, we need more doctors. We need more dentists. You know, the population is aging. Demand for healthcare is going up. We need more doctors. <laughs> and so uh, when uh, when you were thinking about, you know, these really high wages uh, associated with these professions, it's not only important for students to say, well, you know, if I want if I to really make bank, I should be a doctor, but it's also important for policymakers to say, this is a big unmet need in our society, and uh, we should be creating avenues for more people to enter the medical profession, because that is what the
3: economy is telling us. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to Wallet.
0: Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? Rent app, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord.
3: One one thing we we talked about last time was the um, you know a major factor in the ROI analysis is going to be the discount rate you use and I think you said you used a five percent discount rate uh, last time did you use the same one for this the study.
1: That's right, yes. So it's a 3% real discount rate and then assuming 2% inflation, which is probably an assumption that's not so great anymore (laughs) if you see the the recent CPI print had inflation at 8.5% this morning. So that's that's not great news, but basically a 3% real discount rate uh, uh, after adjusting for inflation.
3: Okay, for for those who uh, um, who who maybe not don't understand the the term discount rate, it's it's discounting future earnings as less valuable than they are today, um, because you could be investing those dollars in an alternative asset like the stock market or real estate. Um, so you have to you have to make an assumption there. And Preston has chosen a five percent discount rate, which is perfectly reasonable. You could say if I'm going to think if you, if you think you're going to invest those dollars in real estate and earn a ten or fifteen percent, you would, the the ROI for these degrees would be that much lower because your alternative. Um investment that and what you believe you could get would be that much higher in the alternatives um, with that. If if I am, if my goal is financial independence at an early age, 30s, 40s, 50s, what should I take away from this study? Should does how does that change the game from a a, 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 a an ROI standpoint for these graduate degrees? Does it eliminate most of them? So if
1: your goal is, you know, financial security by the age of 30 or 40, I think the, the main takeaway is that your field of study really matters and that, uh, you know, different careers are going to pay vastly different amounts. And it's no accident that that happens because, you know, some jobs, some fields are just going to be more in demand than others, which is, which, is, which is the reality of our economy, that a computer scientist is, uh, is going to be more in demand than, uh, than an artist. Uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, artists are, 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 are useless or anything. Like that, I don't want to be uh, construed as saying that, but it does mean that there is uh, there are differences in uh, demand for these various professions, and if your goal is financial security, that is something that you should absolutely be taking into account. So, you know, when you're when you're deciding, you know, how to plot out your uh, your your uh, your uh, career journey in order to gain that financial security, uh, first place you should probably start is uh, well, what is my undergraduate graduate education going to look like? Because you know that is going to make a huge difference. To uh, your your future finance uh, financial success as well, you know, choosing a, to major in a computer science, engineering, uh, economics, uh, you know, at that at the undergraduate level, business is a very good degree that tends to pay off, you know, or nursing, you know, that's gonna that's gonna do pretty well. Uh, and then looking at the graduate side, you know, what fields of study are gonna pay off, you know. Getting an advanced degree in computer science or engineering, yep, that's probably going to be good. That's probably going to going to help you become financially secure. Uh, not always, you know. If you get a, if you get the MBA, at least not from one of the top twenty schools, that's probably not gonna not gonna help with uh, financial security. Um, but it really matters, you know what what you're going to choose uh, as your field of study. And uh, I also want to bring up really quickly, uh, since we're talking about this, uh, you know, the student debt issue, you know. Student debt at the uh, graduate level is going to be way higher than it is at the undergraduate level. If you read op-eds in the New York Times or wherever about you know people talking about how they have over a hundred thousand dollars of student debt. That is almost always somebody who went to graduate school because you know loans uh, for undergraduate students are very strictly capped, at least uh, by the federal government. But for graduate students, they're completely unlimited, and that means you're going to have you know more options uh, to, to get to finance your graduate education, but you can also get yourself into much deeper debt. Uh, and so that's why, you know, especially at the graduate level, it turns out to be very important that you should be considering is this graduate degree going to pay off and is it going to enable me to, uh, to pay off my debt? You know, and it often is. I don't want to say, you know, student debt is always going to be a horrible decision because if you take on $150,000 to get a medical degree, you're probably going to be okay. Uh, but, you know, if you take on $150,000 to get a degree in, um, you know, in, in, in the arts, uh, that's that's le- much less likely that that is going to be a sound financial decision
3: yeah and, and let me let me kind of rephrase kind of the goal that i'm trying to to convey here right financial stability is one thing but let's let's say the, it's a race to 1.5 million dollars in net worth at the earliest possible <laughs> age right ha- and I'm trying to back in mathematically to that right just in in whatever format stocks real estate whatever um or oh, cash right and and i'm I'm looking at these degrees one of the things i'm thinking and, and actually this is creating a new question in my mind as I'm thinking this through. If I'm going to get a law degree, if, if I want to become you know, be worth $1.5 million, it's better to earn $100,000 each year for 15 years um, than to earn nothing for five years, and then 250 dollars or $300,000 per year in the final years uh, backing into that. Because I'm going to have a big tax Tax burden, right? Like I'm going to be in a much higher tax bracket with that with uh, that advanced degree in those prime earning years than I would if I had kind of spread that out over that journey without that degree. For example, was was it, was that at all factored into your analysis? The the kind of the relative tax brackets that these and and the amount of actual net worth that one could theoretically accumulate if they went through these programs at different intervals.
1: That is that is a great question. So you know all of the uh, the earnings that we took into account in this analysis are going to be uh, are going to be pre tax uh, just just for the sake of simplicity. But you know that it, you you do bring up a great point that it's important for students to consider that you know what is my tax bracket going to look like uh, later on in life? And I think it is you know kind of strange that you know from a tax perspective, if you make two million dollars of the course of your life. You're going to be taxed much more if uh, those two million dollars are concentrated in some very high earning years at the end of your life, rather than you know uh, spread out over 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 many years. Which is kind of a strange quirk of the the income tax system that uh, that that, that uh, <laughs> I, I think it's just a, it's probably going to be inherent to any, any income tax system. But you're you're absolutely right that that is something that uh, that students uh, should be considering.
3: Yeah, so I'm gonna if I'm if I'm gonna get a medical degree, I'm gonna be paying no tax um, for eight to ten years, and I'm gonna be paying a tremendous amount of tax for that. And so that break-even point from a true net worth um, contribution is gonna get kicked out just a few years from what I w- I would see in that in, in your study, um, which is you know a, a layer of complexity that doesn't sound very reasonable to add in, but um, just something yeah. for for some students to for some uh, potential graduate. Folks considering this degree to think about as a as something going on in the background that is going to be impacting the, the ROI after tax of some of these degrees.
1: Absolutely. That's that's something very important, very important to consider. Unfortunately, we didn't incorporate that layer into the analysis, but uh yes, if you're listening, that is something you should absolutely be thinking
3: about. Awesome.
0: So I think the ideal listener for this episode is somebody who has not yet gone to college. It doesn't really do me much good to look at your degrees and your research would be like, Oh, look at that. I really messed up by going to college. Like, Oh, well, I shouldn't have done this. If I could go back in the wayback machine, you know, this would, I shouldn't have gone to college. That would have been a better choice. But, you know, um, going forward, I, I like Scott's question. Um, and I like that you brought up college debt and student loan debt. Uh, and that made me think about an episode that we recorded a thousand years ago. It released on episode 199 with debt ascent. And his blog is called Debt Ascent because they were in $520,000 worth of student loan debt because his wife is a dentist. Mm. And she had the majority of it. He's an engineer, she's a dentist, and the majority of their student loan debt was her dental school. And dental school is not cheap at all. And I just think it's really interesting. Now they're making a combined $400,000 plus per year and they were able to pay off that debt and have an additional $500,000 in net worth. Um your top advanced degree is the dental degree from the University of Colorado. The ROI on that is $10,800,000. <laughs> wow. Which makes that $500,000 in student loan debt seem rather paltry.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah, dental school is a
2: bargain. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So everybody go be a dentist.
2: Sometimes when I'm sitting at the dentist, I'm like, who the hell would want to be a dentist? There's just like, no one wants to be there all day. And it's just like, doesn't seem that fun. But now I understand why
0: people want to. Yeah, no, every time I'm at the dentist, I think this, because it's not just people with nice, teeth that you get to work on. You have to work on people who are like, I haven't been to the dentist in 47 years. And you're like, okay, (laughs) that's not, you know, can you be discriminatory as a dentist? You just say, I only want people who brush every day and (laughs) floss. I I
3: don't, I don't, I I don't think those are the folks that are going to get the return of $10 million on their dental degree. well, one other question I had here, and it's similar to medical degrees, was I know a number of veterinarians, and I've heard um, from these veterinarians that veterinary school is one of the worst ROIs in the entire ecosystem of these types of degrees because the programs are as intensive as a dental or medical degree in many cases, and require similar amounts of student loan debt, but the income potential is very low. Did you do any work with the veterinarian degrees in this in these studies?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so we didn't break that out specifically, but you know I can look up veterinary medicine in our uh, our table here, which uh, you can look up if you go to roi.freeop.org. Uh, you'll be able to see that there's a a page there where you can uh, look up uh, the ROI of basically any uh, a- any uh, any degree in the country. So let's see. The uh, financial value of a veterinary degree. The top one is from Ohio State University, which has an ROI of almost 2.5 million. You know, Tuskegee University, Texas A&M University, University of Florida, Oklahoma State Universities. The these all have uh, veterinary programs with ROI above 1.5 million. But you know, if I scroll down uh, towards the end of this, uh, there are also some uh, veterinary uh, veterinary science, veterinary medicine programs that do not have great ROI. There are there are none that are outright. Negative, but there are some that are, you know, in the 300000 four hundred thousand dollar $400,000 range, which is something that you might more associate with a bachelor's degree rather than this uh, very uh, supposedly very lucrative uh, professional degree. So, I think my answer would be if you're considering uh, veter- uh, being a veterinarian as a career, that there's a lot of variation uh, depending on uh, which school to g- school you go to, and um, if uh, if you're curious to learn more, uh, we we have all the calculations there uh, where you can look them up and, and find uh, the best school that will suit your.
3: Needs. Awesome. Well, I have been operating under the bias that that's one of the the worst ROI degrees and now we can actually look at the data and see that's not that's not correct. So, thank you. Um Yeah, what was <laughs> that website that,
0: again?
1: That. ROI what? roi.freeop.org So, roi.freopp.org. Um and so that will take you to a page uh where you can look at uh, uh the um ROI associated with colleges, graduate schools or community colleges if you uh uh, if you scroll down, and if you look at where it says "We calculated return on investment for 14,000 graduate degrees," uh, find yours. That'll take you to a searchable table uh, where you can put in uh, any field of study or any university, and you can see our estimates of ROI uh, associated with uh, each of those um, each of those degrees.
3: So, I, I, I want to ask a question here, a little tongue in cheek. But you know, if if this you've now produced the most comprehensive analysis on roi for undergraduate and advanced degrees probably in the world at this point um and what else do you have to do to get a phd like like how hard is it to get a phd uh, if, if if you're still in, in your program <laughs>
0: uh, and are you using this as your phd thesis
1: you know i wish i could uh it's surprising but you know analysis like this if there's no fancy econometric technique in there that uh, it's hard to get published in journals so they they don't always accept that as a, as, a, uh, as a PhD dissertation but you know that's why I think it's important I think this segues into a nice point where it's much more important to think about what you want your career to be than what you want your school to be you know school should be a means to an end, a means to a happy life and I think a happy life begins with a, a very fulfilling career. And uh, you know, I found that you know, doing this research on uh, higher education, helping people make better decisions about college and graduate school, is, uh, is is a very very fulfilling use of my time. And I think that the PhD that I'm doing has has helped me along the road to that. But uh, road to that. But it's uh, definitely not the be all or end all of my life. And uh, if I, uh, uh, but I'm, you know, very happy in the uh, the career that I've been able to uh, uh, to choose, and regardless of whether I can put this into my dissertation or not, I'm uh, I'm happy that it's out there.
3: <laughs> I don't know what the other PhD candidates are are putting out, but this seems useful to me. <laughs> uh.
0: This should be required reading for anybody who is going into college. Yes, <laughs> both of these studies.
1: <laughs> and uh, I also just want to bring up the point that you know. When I started my PhD program, I kind of fell back on the same assumption that I think a lot of people do, that higher degrees, more education is always going to lead to higher earnings. And then I did the calculations for my PhD program, <laughs> and uh, it turned out to uh, to be negative. Uh, not outrageously negative, but it turned out to be negative uh, because. And I think the reason for that is that it's strong mostly economists, uh, people who have uh, very who have other opportunities that might be uh, fairly lucrative if they didn't go into the onto the PhD. But. Uh, Yes, it turned out to be um, it turned out to be uh, uh, not necessarily a great financial investment. I, I have a life philosophy of not having regrets, so I don't regret doing it. But I think that if I'd had this information uh, three years ago when I started my PhD program, I I might have made a different decision. And so I hope that uh, you know this, this this research will also influence uh, influence other people's decisions uh, later on.
3: I think it's also important to point out that the degree will vary by individual, right? There's going to be variance, variation within these degrees, and um, I, I will be surprised if, if uh, you know, your, your PhD is in economics, right? That's right. Yeah, I'll be surprised if, with the work that you're doing and the passion and the thoroughness with which you do it, that having a doctoral in economics won't actually serve you, Preston, very well over the course of your career. Because this is <laughs> this is stuff that can impact policy and people's lives at the highest level. And having that credential behind you will make it even that much more um, uh, impressive or, or more valuable to, to folks as you up, as I'm sure you update this and maintain the database over time.
2: Preston, I'm sure you're gonna drag up the average for your entire PhD program. It's probably (laughs) going to be profitable by the time you're done. You're starting to use the mean instead of the median, and you'll you'll have it up (laughs) in, in no time. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a great
3: point. Does the do are some of these degrees inflated by you know like a Harvard MBA? Is that inflated by the the guy who goes out and starts you know Facebook? I know he was a dropout, but uh, yeah. I mean, like one of the like how, how how much are some of these degrees um, inflated by outlay, outliers that are impacting the data to some degree?
1: Yeah, so fortunately, the uh, data that the education department makes available uh, that we used to do this study, that is based on the median of graduate earnings, not the mean. Uh, so fortunately, it's not going to be, uh, the the earnings estimates are not going to be dragged up by one crazy outlier. I remember somebody told a story about uh, their uh, geography program at the, I think it was North Carolina State uh, or University of North Carolina, one of them, and um, the earnings for the geography program were the highest in of uh, in, in, in any major. Because they were using means, and Michael Jordan had been a geography teacher, <laughs> so <laughs> that's why it's important to use medians instead of means. But also why it's important to uh, uh, consider the individual—you know, not necessarily the program. And while you know median earnings uh, for each program can be an important guide to uh, what you think you might earn later on, it is still important to remember that you're still an individual, and uh, you're the median is not necessarily uh, the destiny uh, for for your
3: Career. That's an awesome story. I yeah. love that, Michael Jordan. <laughs> geology major. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that we should be asking you, or any other other thoughts that we should we should explore here for this study?
1: Yeah, so uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about our study is uh, after we produced the estimates for undergraduate ROI, a lot of people wrote to me and said, well, why the heck are biology degrees so low? You know, it turned out that, you know, biology, which is supposedly a hard science, you know, 35% of of degrees were negative, and uh, that seemed kind of surprising. And uh, the reason there is that people will usually use a biology degree as a stepping stone towards a medical degree. And so, once you put the ROI of a biology undergraduate degree and a uh, medical graduate degree together, it turns out the ROI for that is close to one million. So that's a pretty good investment overall. But if you get the biology degree and then you don't go on to a, uh, a lucrative graduate degree, the chance that that, that uh, educational pathway is going to pay off is a lot lower. And so, uh, to kind of address this question that many people had, we also produced estimates for. Um, the kind of lifetime learning ROI of uh very popular combinations of bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees uh biology and medicine is one example uh but you know you also have uh combinations like uh say political science and law you know political science is 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 a degree that does not always pay off at the undergraduate level but if you combine it with a law degree then it's going to pay off about $750,000 over your career on average so it turns out to be turns out to be much better uh so that's you know that's a table that you can uh, if you look at the um, the uh, the full paper uh, and scroll down uh, a bit, uh, you can see that table uh, where we have lifetime learning ROI estimates for popular combinations of uh, bachelor's and graduate degrees. And uh, if you, uh, as a student, or you have a, a child who is considering uh, an advanced degree at some point, uh, that can be useful. That uh, you know, an undergraduate degree that might not necessarily pay off pay off on its own uh, might might be actually kind of lucrative when it's combined with the the right graduate degree.
3: So that being, that brings the, the 10 million dollar question here. What is the best combination for a aspiring dentist?
1: For, a be- for an aspiring dentist. So I think it's going to be uh, that biology degree again. Uh, so the uh, the data we use to uh, calculate you know, what are the most co- popular combinations of undergrad and grad degrees, unfortunately did not distinguish between uh, medical degrees and uh, dentistry degrees. It kind of lumped them all into one category. I don't know why they, they clearly didn't consult uh, doctors and dentists when they were doing that data, but that's the data we have. So that's the data we use. <laughs> uh, so that $900,000 average, uh, which is the uh, uh, average, for uh, a biology plus medical graduate degree, uh, that's going to
3: be our estimate for both medical and dentistry degrees. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we asked about another question there. Uh, we would have missed that entire that really <laughs> important linkage between <laughs> undergraduate and graduate and the combination. That's a, that's impactful there. So, thank you for for saving us there, Preston. Of course. Um, <laughs> keep keep going. Is there, are, are there other areas that we should be exploring here as well beyond that?
1: Yeah, well, I I think I would reiterate that you know field of study is really important when we're talking about uh, uh, master's degrees and you know and you know advanced degrees um, and that you know some fields of study are going to pay off much greater than others. But I also kind of want to link back this whole analysis to what we're seeing going on in the news right now. Uh, so there's a big story you know about how college enrollment is dropping. Uh, fewer people are going to college. I think that's kind of because of uh, the hot labor market right now. Uh, you know, getting a job looks like a better proposition as not necessarily than uh, going to uh, school for four years. But the one place where we're seeing that trend being reversing itself is at the graduate degree level, that enrollments in master's degree programs have kind of shot through the roof in the last two years. and uh, that is kind of a bit concerning uh, uh, from the standpoint of this research because the research shows that 40% of master's degrees uh, do not pay off on average. And so if we're seeing this big increase in people going to uh, graduate school for a master's degree, uh, that a lot of people may be disappointed, you know especially if they're taking on debt to get a master's degree and then not necessarily getting the earnings benefits uh, associated
3: with that. Um, yeah, but you, you can see rationality with that decision, right? Because COVID happens, I'm laid off. The, the economy is not is not doing great, right? I don't have any counterfactual earnings um, in those <laughs> first six months uh, or a year of COVID, right? So the decision there, you know, seems more, you know, that's it, it, a logical decision to then enroll in grad school. No one, you know, I don't think could have predicted, hey, everything's going to bounce back, right? Like so hard in 2021 and in early 2022 here from a, an economy standpoint and availability of jobs right so you can you I think you're right to be a, to be concerned about that and whether a lot of those degrees will in fact pay off but it doesn't mean that a lot of these folks made a bad decision at the time right I and mean, that's a perfectly logical thing. It's,
1: yeah, that's a that's that's a great point. Um and you know, I think it you know, it, get, it gets back to the issue of, you know, what are the various what are the various opportunity costs? What are the various options available to you? And you know, if you get laid off from uh from your job, um, you know, school you know graduate school or, or, or college can seem like a pathway to increase your your financial security um, i just worry about when people assume that that degree is going to guarantee you financial security for life uh, because the uh, the the evidence shows that that's not necessarily going to going to happen all the time and when the default assumption becomes you know if i'm experiencing tough economic times the definite answer must be to get a uh, another degree um, i think people will often be uh, be disappointed Pointed, uh, with with that decision.
3: Now, now let's go back to the undergraduate degree. Where you said enrollments beginning to drop a little bit. Is that a, is that a volume and a rate component, like less like just less high school seniors right now? So enrollments dropping, or is it less uh, lower percentage of high school seniors are enrolling in college?
1: Uh, it's both. So enrollments are dropping in both kind of absolute and relative terms. So we have a, a few a lower percentage of high school seniors enrolling in college, and we also have a uh, uh, college enrollments dropping in absolute terms. Uh, um, you know that there are just fewer numbers of students on campus, and we also see adult learners, people uh, uh, who who did not necessarily graduate from college uh, just just a couple months ago. Excuse me, graduate from high school a couple months ago, uh, but people who might want to. Go back to college uh, for another degree later on in their lives. Um, Though their enrollments are also dropping. Uh, so, but that's all. That's all confined to the undergraduate level. Again, at the graduate level, those trends are reversing themselves.
3: So, I'm about to make a bet. You know, assuming that. Um my wife and I start a family in the next year or two. I'm, and it's going to be a very expensive bet if I'm wrong on this. But <laughs> I, I believe that college education is going to be much less expensive um, in real dollars, maybe not inflation adjusted, maybe not when you, you know, nominal dollars after inflation in 15, 20 years when any future children I have will go to college. And and I believe that for a number of reasons. Partially, I think the research like yours will, will prove out majors that are not Economical and um, demand will shrink for those as will cost. I think that um, college education is being really inflated by the availability. The cost of college education is being inflated by the availability of debt, um, which which can you know now anyone can go and go to get a degree from college with a lifetime loan essentially on that. and I think that that is going to change either that that will get forgiven um, or it will become less available over the next couple of, of decades. either way, that will re- lead to a reduction in future accessibility of college debt, in my opinion for for many students downstream. Um, and that combination, lo- less debt and less and and more understanding of the ROI of these degrees, I think will lead to lower costs for for college in general. And so this is a 20 year outlook. I can't possibly know if I'll be right or not, but I'm choosing not to. I, I will almost certainly choose not to put money into a 529 plan or similar college dedicated savings program, and instead build wealth in a general sense um, to give optionality if future children do, in fact, decide to go to college. For that, what are you? Do you have any any long term predictions for for this industry or thoughts like that? Um, or would you challenge would you challenge mine?
1: Sure. Well, uh, let's start with the uh, let's start with the short term predictions, and then then build out from there to the long term predictions. So, 2021 was the first year, uh, basically in three decades, that college tuition actually dropped in real terms. Uh, so, before uh, uh, for the last uh, three decades, since basically the late 1980s college tuition has risen above the rate of inflation year after year after year after year after year and i'm um, if you have par- if you have ch- children in high school i'm sure this is not going to be news to you but in 2021 that trend reversed itself and tuition actually uh, uh, dropped in real terms. Part of that was higher inflation, but part of that was also that uh, you know colleges were were actually cutting their their tuitions. And I think a big reason for that is uh, what you alluded to. You know that uh, demand for higher education was dropping, and colleges realized, wait a minute, we can't just keep raising tuition year after year if uh, students are not going to be uh, uh, if students are not going to our schools anymore. We're going to need to uh, cut tuition in order to lure them back. So how does this, you know, extrapolate out to the longer term? I think that a big uh, factor right now in today's uh, uh, reduction in tuition is the very strong labor market. That might not uh, uh, that might not continue forever. I certainly hope that it does. You know, strong labor markets make all sorts of wonderful things happen in the economy. So I hope that uh, we continue to have a strong labor market. Uh, but that's not that that might not be the case forever. If we have another recession, we might see that trend reverse itself and uh, uh, college enrollment uh, start to rise again. But as to what is this going to to look like uh, fifteen or twenty years from now. I think that the knowledge, as you alluded to, definitely is settling in among students that you know college is not always a golden ticket. That it depends just as much as what kind of degree am, am I getting, as opposed to you know am I getting a degree, and that different degrees are going to be worth uh, vastly different amounts in terms of uh, uh, in terms of their financial value. I think that that realization is going to ha- drive students to be a little bit more discerning, a little bit more considering about whether they decide to uh, pursue a college education. I certainly hope so. Um, and that might uh, exert a moderating influence on tuition prices if uh, there's no longer this belief that college is always going to be a golden ticket. Uh, I certainly hope that's going to be the case. Uh, that's, the, that's the optimistic case, which I think uh, you also laid out. Uh, but uh, I may be proven wrong, so we'll
3: see. Do you have any thoughts on, the, uh, on, on um, federal student loan debt and, 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 and how that may be impacting prices as well?
1: Yes. So I do worry that if there is a uh, large-scale cancellation of student loan debt, colleges might take that as a signal to start raising their prices again. And so the reason is that uh, if the government cancels student loan debt, I don't think it can credibly say that we're only going to cancel student loan debt once, because we are still issuing almost $100 billion in new federal student loans every single year. And if we you know, continue with business as usual, even if we cancel debt, student debt is going to be back up to $1.6 trillion in the matter of a decade, just a little more than a decade. And so what kind of expectations is this going to create for students and colleges? If... Uh, If if, if the government cancels student debt, then colleges can kind of credibly whisper into students' ears, you know, it's okay if you take out some more debt because, you know, the government's probably going to forgive it for forgive it later on. And so I do worry about the uh, kind of moral hazard effect that this uh, this creates. If um, we have a cancellation of debt, but we don't necessarily have any kind of new restrictions on new lending, if we just continue with the student loan program uh, business as usual, uh, colleges might take that as a signal that it's okay to raise prices because taxpayers are eventually going to pay for it.
3: Yeah, well, that, that's where I'm thinking. And now we're getting to the realm of politics. So I don't want to go too far down this road, but you <laughs> wonder if if you cancel student loan debt, if there's a, a forced cancellation of future issuing of student loan debt, or heavy restrictions that are placed on it. And so that's that's what I think is going to happen over the next couple, the next decade or two. Is is either there will be a cancellation event, or there will be, and then corresponding restrictions on future issuing of student loan debt um, that will make it much harder to get loans for unprofitable degrees in particular, or there will just be more restrictions on getting student loan debt for unprofitable degrees without that cancellation event. So I just think w- w- one of those two combinations is to me seems inevitable um, to, to some degree. I don't know if, if you agree, but that's that's kind of how I'm that that's influencing my thinking on on saving for a potential future college.
1: Yes, so there. I think there is kind of bipartisan recognition in Congress uh, that you know the student loans program does need to be reined in somewhat. That uh, you know we are funding a lot of uh, degrees of questionable value, and uh, we're we're not sure if you know whether taxpayers should actually be you know uh, writing writing a blank check for these degrees. Um, and so I think that they both parties have proposed in recent years, you know, comprehensive overhauls of the Higher Education Act. That's the main federal law that, that governs uh, federal support for higher education. Comprehensive overhauls that do include some restrictions on new lending, which uh, which is mainly going to take the form of, uh, you know, if you're operating a program that has a loan repayment rate that's too low, if students are not earning enough to earn, to, to to pay back their debts, then uh, the government's going to turn off the spigot to that program. You say, you know, the, these outcomes are clearly not on par with what we expect from a federally-funded program. So we're just, we're going to turn off the spaghetti. You can't get any more money from the federal government. Uh, That, those bills have so far gone nowhere because I think that the uh, Republican and Democratic parties are very far apart on other aspects of higher education policy that have made it very difficult for a compromise on, you know, accountability for federally funded programs to actually get over the finish line. Uh, So... I certainly hope that there are going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be some accountability, some restrictions on new lending for programs of, uh, you know, questionable value. But the uh, politics of it might just make that impossible.
3: You're phenomenal. This was this was a great discussion, <laughs> and we we like, you, you thought of everything as, as Dave as Dave mentioned earlier. So that, that was really. This has been a really fun discussion, and and I, I've learned a tremendous amount here today. Mindy and Dave, do you have anything else um, to ask here?
2: No, this is great. Thank you so much, Preston. As as usual, you know, very enlightening conversation. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and just and nerd out with you all. I'm sorry I
1: interrupted, Mindy. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, I was going to say I appreciate you coming back on again. What's your next uh, topic of research?
1: So uh, our next topic of research is looking, basically looking into how this this ROI data can be used to affect public policy. So you know, as I mentioned, um, you know there is bipartisan interest in kind of an accountability system for uh, institutions of higher education that are receiving federal funding, and uh, I think that you know ROI can be a good metric to uh, judge uh, programs on whether they're providing value to students, and uh, for the government to say, you know, if we're going to be funding these programs, what kind of ROI should we be expecting? You know. How much, how much leeway we leeway we do we want to give them so that's kind of the next avenue of research is uh is is using the data we've uh, created as part of this ROI project to say what are the lessons for public policy
0: awesome i'm excited i hope that your research has some impact because it is absurd that some of these programs continue to be funded yeah. <laughs> or, or, or that uh it's absurd that students can continue to take out massive student loans on these some of these programs which are absurd to begin with
1: I certainly agree,
0: Preston. This was so much fun. I love talking to you all the time. Uh, when you do a, a real estate one, let us know because Dave can prick your brain on <laughs> real estate. Any topic, he's got you covered.
1: All right, yeah, I keep that in mind. <laughs> thank you again for inviting me back on.
0: Oh, thank you so much for doing the research because this is fascinating. But I don't want to do the work. I just want to talk to you.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: Preston. We'll talk
1: to you soon. Talk to you soon. Take care.
0: Okay. That was the impressive Preston Cooper. I love him so much. Like Dave said in the intro, I hope he doesn't think that we're fawning over him too much <laughs> and get uncomfortable, but wow. He's so impressive. His big brain and it, it's it, taking all of that information. <laughs> he
2: thought of everything. Was I fanboying too hard? <laughs> I think we all were. Yeah. So ho- hopefully he comes back.
0: Of course he'll come back. I love him. He will come back. He reached out to me. He's like, hey, I finished my research. I'm like, great, when, when can we get you on? I'm super excited to have him on the show because I think it's really, really important to have this information. Now he is also getting a, a higher level degree and he said, uh, it, my degree turns out to have a negative RRI. Maybe I would have made a different decision, maybe not. It would have been nice to have this information, but I didn't at the time. So I made the best choice with the information that I have. Anybody who is listening now who has people in their life who are thinking about going to college need to listen to episode 251 if they have not yet gone through their undergrad program and they need to listen to this episode and encourage their college age family to listen to this as well because it's so important sometimes the school that you choose is important more than what you're studying and sometimes what you're studying is really important and you know if you don't know what to study Maybe going to college isn't the right choice at this time.
3: Yeah, I think it's really extremely valuable work. I think he is you know, in my opinion, a thought leader in this space, um, for sure at this point with with his exhaustive data set, he's able to translate the story that these numbers are telling and the exceptions and logically kind of think through all of these different paths and has a genuine enthusiasm for understanding the truth of what's going on in the ROI in in, in terms of college ROI and is creating a really valuable product for individuals. And I hope you know that he has a chance to have his voice heard at the policy level. This is the kind of person that we need um, influencing those policy decisions. He has really thoughtful um, uh, uh, ideas on on how to make things better for society um with his research. so really impressive guy, and I can't wait to follow I, I can't wait to see what comes next in his career and what other pieces of thought leadership he'll produce over time
2: absolutely i I, I just think it's it's super helpful to think about um what Like as if you're listening to the show and planning your financial future and thinking about maybe investing in real estate or investing in the stock market, I really liked the part where we were talking about um, you know when you make money and if you should go to school quickly because if you think about the time value of money or investing for a long term, it really does matter like when you go to your graduate program, when you earn that money. Scott, you asked a great question about taxes, and I think um, it it, while Preston has. Uh, provided a really valuable data set for people, it's not just so cut and dry where you can say, this will be good for me or not good for me. If you're planning to invest and to be an active, you know, to be an active investor, um, you can come up with creative ways to make your graduate degree or college supplement your investing career and supplement your uh, investing ambitions. It doesn't have to be one way or another. Love it. Well, Mindy, Dave, should we get out of here?
0: Yes, We should. We threw out a lot of links today. They can all be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow293 from episode 293 of the Bigger Pockets Money Show. That first guy is Dave Meyer. And if you like this episode, you will love his new podcast, On the Market, available wherever you get your podcasts. The other guy is Scott Trent. You already know him. And I am Indy Jensen saying, chop, chop, lollipop.